So, Rachel, I finished Uncanny Avengers, and I'm still pretty hazy on who the Maximoff twins' parents are. Django and Maria Maximoff. I thought they retconned that away years ago. I mean, the Maximoffs adopted the twins, right? I remember that. You remember correctly. So they're just not adopted anymore? No, they're still adopted. Why would you adopt your own kids? Well, no one knew they were the Maximoffs' twins. Bova thought they were Magda Eisenhart's. Magda? You mean Magneto's wife? Right. And Bova's the cow lady who hangs out with the high evolutionary. Exactly. So how'd she end up with the twins? Well, despite being hidden way the hell up in the mountains and guarded by a bunch of transformed animal people, apparently the High Evolutionary's Fortress was briefly the place to go give birth to your super kids. Magda ended up there when she was pregnant, and Bova agreed to hang on to the babies so Magneto wouldn't get a hold of them. Okay. And then, a little while later, the wizard and Miss America showed up, and she was also pregnant. Wait, wait, rewind. There was a character named The Wizard? I know, right? He was actually this dude named Robert Frank who developed super speed as a side effect of being injected with mongoose blood. You just made that up. I did not. Mongoose blood. Scout's honor. And he was married to Miss America. How'd that work? She first showed up in 2011, and she's a teenager and gay. No, not America Chavez. The original Miss America, Madeline Joyce. Unfortunately, she'd been exposed to massive amounts of radiation, and after giving birth to a stillborn baby, she died of radiation poisoning. Bummer. I know, but conveniently, Bova happens to have these spare babies on hand, so she tells the wizard that they're his and tries to convince him to take them, but he's heartbroken, so he goes off to do whatever he does, so I hang out with mongooses or something, I don't know. Where do the Maximoffs come in? Well, they happened to be in the neighborhood not long after, and Bova was all, hey, want some free babies? And they were all sweet! Only she told them that the babies belonged to the wizard and Miss America, too, I guess, to protect them from a possible magnetic paternity suit. So they're not the Maximoff kids? Well, they weren't. Except for the one time Django kind of lost it and imprisoned their souls in puppets, but that's a whole other thing. Well, then. But what the latest Uncanny Avengers series revealed is that instead of dying, the Maximoff twins, the original ones, were kidnapped as babies by the High Evolutionary, but not before Wanda got imprinted on by a demon. A demon? Um, don't worry about it. It's not really relevant here. In any case, the High Evolutionary experimented on them for a while, preventing them from aging, and then I guess decided to just return them for store credit, which they never really bothered trying to resolve with the original backstory, but it would have to mean that Bova got the twins before Magda showed up, switched them out for Magda's actual baby or babies as some kind of weird dry run from the Miss America Wizards scenario, and then passed them off to a random local couple, oh God. who by total coincidence happened to be the twins' original birth parents. What?! I'm Rachel Edidon. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to the 64th episode of Rachel and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, outs, and retcons of our favorite superhero soap opera. Rachel, I think my head hurts from that cold open. Right. I should say also that co-writing credit for that cold open goes to Max Carlton of Waiting for the Trade, who is a world-renowned expert on specifically the Maximoff twins, and who I had to text repeatedly this morning while writing it, because I literally could not make head or tails of what I was reading. I mean, I kind of feel like if you're going to be the, a world-renowned expert, on something, you should choose something simple, like, I don't know, Finnegan's Wake. Yeah, no, it is amazing. And Max's level of expertise on this is spectacular. I should say again, and I think we've mentioned the strip on the podcast before, that if you're not reading Waiting for the Trade and you're fond of deep dive continuity jokes, you really, really should be because it's really funny. Yes. So before we dive into X Factor, we have one more thing. Right. We do not ordinarily do birthday shoutouts on this podcast, as you have maybe noticed in the last 63 episodes, but our youngest consulting expert turns four this week, and that is Kestrel, who is awesome, and I want to take a minute to stop and pause and wish her a happy birthday. Yes, indeed. Happy birthday, Kestrel. If you are listening and you happen to draw or be into that stuff, speaking of Maximoffs, Kestrel's very, very, very favorite X character of all time is the Scarlet Witch. 
if you feel like wishing her a happy birthday by way of us, we will happily pass those greetings along. Indeed. Meanwhile, the original five X-Men have been making terrible decisions. Let's talk about that. Oh, let's do. I feel like that's kind of our life mission statement right there. <laughs> Good point. Previously on X-Factor. So we've covered the initial five issues and first annual of X-Factor, which is the X-Book that premiered in 85, where the original five X-Men, including a resurrected sort of Jean Grey, get together and uh, sort of do their own thing outside of the X-Men. In summary, those first five issues are the dues you pay to get to the Louise Simonson run. Yeah, so the uh, first five issues are done by the writer Bob Layton and the artist Jackson Geis. Now, Jackson Geis is still around at this point. Layton is off the book. Uh, there aren't really any solid bits of information about why. Some people have cited difficulty working with Chris Claremont. Other people have cited scheduling issues. It's hard to actually say, but he's gone, and Louise Simonson has taken over. And this is, again, to recap something that we discussed last time we talked about this book. This is a book that had been plagued by logistical issues some of which had to do with its creative context, some of which had to do with things like hurricanes. There isn't really a definitive story about the creative switch. As Miles mentioned, you know, you get a different version. And looking at the environment it's coming out of, it's reasonably likely, or it seems reasonably likely, that there's some truth to most of them. Yeah, it's quite possible. So we'll get to Louise Simonson in a moment, but first, the premise of X-Factor right now is that uh, they are two teams. They are X-Factor, like in the title, who are a group of mutant hunters who will take care of your mutant problem, and they're basically advertising themselves like the Ghostbusters. Now, the same set of characters, and again, these are the original five X-Men, Cyclops, Marvel Girl, Beast, Angel, and Iceman. The same group of people also dress up in brightly colored costumes and go around as the X-Terminators, a group of renegade mutants who periodically fight X-Factor. Right, so basically the deal is they entice people to call X-Factor on mutants and then use that as an opportunity to go in as their other alter egos, their alter alter egos, and then rescue those mutants, kind of like the original X-Men did back in the Silver Age. But with three layers less subterfuge because it was a simpler time. It was a simpler time. Also a more black and yellow time. And so, as far as character changes, so Jean Grey is back from the dead. That's a long story that we've covered multiple times, so just go back to previous episodes. Yeah, there's the whole episode about that Phoenix Retcon. In fact, there are two whole episodes about the Phoenix Retcon, um, in one of which we talk to the person responsible for it. But she is, at this point, only telekinetic. She has lost her telepathy. Right. And uh, the Beast has also gone back to a previous state. He's lost his fur. Now he just looks like a relatively normal person, albeit a normal person with a truly astonishing flat top. Unlike Jean, Beast did not lose his fur and bestial appearance to a cosmic force. He, in fact, lost it to mad science, specifically the mad science of one Carl Maddox, who is an older villain and is now out of the picture, but whose young son, Artie, is running around with the team. Right. So the other person running around with the team is Rusty Collins, who's a young pyrokinetic that the team has rescued. Now, the big sort of unspoken shadow that's hanging over the whole team is that Cyclops, when he thought Jean was dead, got married to a woman named Madeline Pryor, who has since disappeared. He has yet to tell Madeline about Jean or Jean about Madeline, despite the other members of his team uh, who know about it constantly hounding him to do so. We should point out two things also, which is that A, they have a kid who has presumably also disappeared with Madeline and who will eventually grow up to be Cable. And two, he's been trying to tell Jean about Madeline. It's just that literally every time he starts, an alarm goes off. Yeah, it's actually kind of comical at this like, point. Like, it, it, I don't know if it was intended as a running joke, but it really reads like one. Yep, I feel like depending on the soundtrack you used, if you were to make an X-Factor TV show, it could be anywhere between tragedy and comedy. Yeah, oh god, X-Factor, like early X-Factor could so easily and with such minimal alteration become sketch comedy. Right, totally. Can we do that? Can we just get someone to act out early X-Factor with like a bad sitcom soundtrack or a laugh track or something? I think that might be a very far away Patreon stretch goal. I want this in my life. <laughs> 
So yeah, that's basically where we are in X Factor, uh, still very early in the series. But like we were saying, we have a brand new writer, a writer who's going to stick with this book for an extremely long time, that being Louise Simonson. Louise Simonson at this point would have been at Marvel for about six years. Uh, she started there in 1980 as an editor, and she came there from Warren Publications, where she'd previously been an editor under the name Louise Jones. She'd started writing for Marvel in 1983. She'd created Power Pack. At that point, she was going by Louise Simonson. She'd since married writer and artist Walter Simonson, who's eventually going to become the ongoing artist on X Factor while she's writing it. Right. She'd been editing the X books before then, but her first X writing actually came in here in X Factor, but not at this point. It was a little bit earlier. She had turned in a fill-in script when it looked like Bob Layton wasn't going to be able to make a deadline. He ended up making the deadline, but when Layton disappeared from the book, Claremont and Anne Nascenti recommended Simonson on the strength of that script. And at that point, the book was hers. And that's actually how she ended up with New Mutants as well, I believe. She started writing some fill-ins as Claremont's schedule was getting busier and ended up getting the book as a whole. She wrote both titles for a pretty long time. She left New Mutants toward the end of the run, I think uh, very shortly after Rob Liefeld came on, which is a story that we will get to at exhaustive length at some point later. That we Um, will. In the 90s, she wrote a lot for DC, I think most notably a bunch of Superman stuff. Yeah, but for right now, Simonson is now the second major voice in the X-Universe and will be for quite a while. And she's specifically a voice in the X-Universe who came into it from very, very heavy involvement in the line. She's coming into it having been the primary X-editor for years and years and years, very heavily involved in the creative end of this. Again, um, we've recommended before the documentary Chris Claremont's X-Men, and there's a lot of discussion of this particular process and transition of it and what it meant for her to come in and start writing. And I highly recommend checking that documentary out if you haven't. You're interested in more of the behind-the-scenes stuff. Simonson, as a writer... I feel like there are a lot of people who tend to kind of overlook her work when they're listing so, the, the yeah. major the major architect of X-Canon. And I suspect one of the reasons for that is that it was coming in at a, at a time when Claremont's voice was still very much defining the line, including the books that he wasn't writing. Absolutely. I mean, Leighton's X-Factor was largely notable for how Claremont it wasn't. Yeah. And I mean, a lot of the things that made it not Claremont were the things that made it not work. Leighton's X-Factor felt like a throwback to the Silver Age in tone and composition as well as in team makeup. And Simonson's X-Factor feels like a part of the current X line. It feels modern in ways that Leighton's really didn't. Right. And one of the things I really like about that specifically is her take on Jean Grey. Now, Jean Grey in the first few issues of X-Factor is kind of reminiscent of Jean from the Silver Age. She's a very reactive character without a lot of personality of her own, and that changes immediately when Simonson takes over. Another thing that Simonson does that I really like you know, I talked in an earlier X Factor episode about the fact that it's kind of the grown-up book. It's about a group of people who grew up as kids on the X-Men trying to negotiate adult life and identities. And that's a premise that's there from the start. And Simonson really takes it and turns it into a narrative theme in ways that it wasn't previously. Absolutely. She also brings in a sense of development and continuity that I think was missing before that makes it fit well with the X-Line also. It becomes less of a sort of Monster of the Week comic. And she starts bringing in kind of plots that will simmer in the background for a while before becoming a really big deal, much in the same way that Claremont does. She also fixes a lot of the weird discrepancies that stick out early in the book. There's a cognitive dissonance in the latent issues for me between the way they're being written and the way it seems like we're supposed to be reading them that goes away when Simonson takes over. Yeah. Now, it's not the smoothest transition in the world because she doesn't just, you know, start fresh writing her way. She does pick up in the middle of a storyline and really does her best not to drop any of the balls that Bob Layton left in the air story-wise. So I think she basically does the best that she can in that regard. But that does mean that if you're expecting to pick up Louise Simonson's first issue and have it just be great from the start, well, it's not exactly there. All right, so let's talk about some of those balls. Okay. 
That's one of the stranger segues we've ever done. But yeah, I'm gonna I, go with well, it. The best part about it is that it's the tamer of the segues that we tried doing. The the segment that, that was recorded prior to it will never hit the air. That's probably for the best. Thank you, Hollywood Magic and Kyle. So yeah, we're gonna start with X Factor number six, which, as I mentioned, is actually continuing directly from Layton's last issue. And we debated whether to include this in the last X Factor episode, but we figured it would be better to pick up with Louise Simonson's start as the writer. To that end, let's recap where we left off, because it was a fairly intensive story. There were kidnappings and X-Factor members pretending to be neither X-Factor members nor X-Terminators nor their civilian personae. All right, I think I can do this really quick. So there's this evil team called the Alliance of Evil. You can tell they're evil because it's right in their name. And uh, they were chasing down this dude named Mike Nolan, whose mutant power is that he can amplify other mutants around him. But he's found that when he takes narcotics, like various drugs, then his powers stop working. So the Alliance is chasing him down because they want to use him to get really powerful. And they're working for a dude who we only see in Shadow at the end of Layton's last issue named Apocalypse. Who, as far as we know, is a large man in a gimp mask living in a ski chateau. Yes, his first appearance was perhaps not the most intimidating in the world. I um, wish they just kept those characteristics and otherwise, you know, left him the way he turned. Perfect, you know, so Nathaniel Essex and Cable and Strife and De Chateau and a Gimp Mask. Yeah, yeah. You know, if we ever can go back in time and fix a thing that's not like stopping World War II or something, then we should do that. Oh, no, yeah. If we had time travel powers, I would just go and peddly mess with Marvel continuity. Like, that would be my main use of a time machine because I am a monster and should not be allowed outside. Rachel, I think you may be chaotic neutral. I thought that we worked that out years ago. (laughs) So anyway, X-Factors got involved and they've been trying to chase Mike Nolan down to prevent the Alliance and Apocalypse from getting him. They failed and they're trying to make another go of it. Meanwhile, all of the members of X-Factor are also pretty angry with each other for some of the reasons that we talked about earlier. You know, Cyclops obviously has a big secret he's not telling anyone. Jean is super screwed up about losing her telepathy. Angel is just kind of being a meddlesome jerk. Yeah, and one thing I really like about this, some of the character work that Simonson throws in there just immediately is we see Cyclops really judging Mike Nolan, talking about how he's just a junkie, how he's a loser, and, you know, he should be able to make the hard choices and let the Alliance of Evil kidnap his wife and still do the right thing. And it's very clear Cyclops is just channeling his anger at himself for not being able to decide directly into Nolan as a scapegoat. And it's transparent, and Cyclops comes off as petty. And I buy it. And he actually calls it out later. Like, he says, you know, I'm just being a dick about this because I'm really angry with myself. And that's actually, I love Simonson's Cyclops because he is, he is a petty jerk. Right. But he's a pretty self-aware petty jerk. And it's a balance that's very, very hard to strike. Having a character screw up that badly and that consistently and still be vaguely sympathetic. Yeah. And so it's nice seeing uh, all of these simmering conflicts that have been simmering for the first five issues of this series finally out in the open and finally being addressed. That lets the story move forward, which it's drastically needed to do. So the members of X-Factor, as the Exterminators, or possibly as X-Factor, they're going back and forth a lot right now, are trying to track down the Alliance of Evil so they can rescue Nolan and his wife. Meanwhile, the Alliance of Evil is having some problems of their own. So they are in a coastal chateau in California. They've captured Nolan and are actually losing control of him until Apocalypse shows up for real for the first time. Let's talk about this character design. Okay, so you've all seen Apocalypse, and a lot of the time he's drawn looking really scary and intimidating, in my opinion, as he should be, because he's kind of the big bad of the entire X universe. Here's the thing, though. Apocalypse is a Kirby villain. I mean, he wasn't designed by Jack Kirby, but he's got the same characteristics that a lot of Kirby characters do, and a lot of the same visual motifs. And one of the things that means is that how seriously it's possible to take Apocalypse is almost entirely dependent on who is drawing him. 
Now, at this point, it's Jackson Geis, and Jackson Geis is a perfectly great artist. I think he does excellent work, but his apocalypse is not exactly the stuff of nightmares. I mean, he might be the stuff of some very specific nightmares. I have weird nightmares. Do you have nightmares about dudes who look like they're in turtlenecks and have their initials on their belt? No, I mostly have nightmares that everyone who I know no longer acknowledges me. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. That's really sad. Totally. And sometimes my teeth fall out. Oh, well, that's just disturbing. Actually, I think it's pretty typical. Never had that one. But anyway, uh, so, oh, geez. Um, so Apocalypse, yeah. And, you know, the writing, I think, does kind of sell it. But you almost have to squint so you're not looking at Apocalypse's appearance too hard. So, okay, one of Apocalypse's early lines, for instance. Flawed though you are, Alliance, know that Apocalypse is pleased with you. For in your rush to destroy, you further my goals. Mutants must fight mutants if the weak are to be winnowed from the strong. And when only the strong are left, Apocalypse will make his move. Pray, all of you, that you are among the strong. This is one of those points where I feel like coming into X-Books with Age of Apocalypse actually served me really well. Because I came to this for the first time predisposed to thinking of Apocalypse as a force to be reckoned with and something to be taken very seriously as opposed to, say, an asshole in a ski lounge wearing a hydraulic turtleneck. Yeah. And I mean, what we see of his powers in this issue are basically that he's stretchy, like Mr. Fantastic. and He, he can, can turn his hands into mallets. Yeah. Like he talks about being able to control every molecule in his body, which, you know, okay, that's actually really powerful, sure. But when you're a stretchy dude with hammer hands, I gotta say, you're not selling me on the whole, like, ancient demigod who's going to destroy the world. Well, it's the Green Lantern problem. Like, they're functionally pretty close to omnipotent, but they're limited by the bounds of imagination. So you get Golden Age Green Lanterns who are basically making big shields and big mallets and not a lot else. So it's, you know, a little silly. You think in a couple thousand years that we'd have figured that out. And actually, can we talk about Apocalypse for a little bit? Because I want to talk about him as a villain. Because he is going to become the iconic villain of X-Factor. And I think kind of of the X-Men line in a lot of ways. The way I've always looked at it is that if Magneto is the X-Men's Joker, you know, sort of philosophically their opposite, then Apocalypse is like Rachel Ghoul. He's not exactly philosophically in line with what the X-Men are trying to prevent, but he's just powerful enough that they all have to band together and get past their ideologies to defeat him. Okay, first of all, Rachel Ghoul, ha- yep. Apocalypse dreams of having the dignity and gravitas of Rachel Ghoul. He probably actually does. He probably doesn't. He probably doesn't care. He probably thinks that those things are traits of lesser species or something. But I dislike Apocalypse as a supervillain. Really? I do, yeah. Because he is frankly ridiculous. His stated purpose and his execution, they don't relate. They don't mesh in sensible ways. He's so utterly committed to his shtick and his premise that his actual stated goal gets lost a ton. And again, you just get the dude in the silly outfit. Now, he is incredibly powerful, but I think he works best. And actually, this is a good Rachel Ghoul comparison. I think he works best as a mastermind. I mean, he should be the kingpin of X-Villains. He should be the guy who the heroes don't actually go up directly against that much but who's always six steps ahead of them, pulling the strings from the shadows, and part of, you know, a monolith that is so big and so powerful, they can't even dream of tearing it down without incredible heroic measures. You know, that I will agree with. I love Apocalypse as a villain. He's one of my favorites. But yeah, I mean, he absolutely works best when he's part of this almost um, industry of evil, you know, when he's part of just this ingrained background process that's just got his tentacles into every aspect of civilization. Right, when he's an established force. He is at his best as a villain in Age of Apocalypse because he's enthroned already. 
when he's working ground level, he's basically the super anticlimactic last boss who you fight after defeating the actual hardest boss. Yeah, you know, when he's just a stretchy dude with hammer hands, then really, I'm not going to call him the big villain of any franchise, not even like a KFC. Well, and in a lot of ways, he ends up too big to be interesting a lot of the time, which is sad because he's got a fascinating backstory and it's linked to a lot of weird and interesting parts of the Marvel Universe like the Celestials. He's been around since ancient Egypt. I mean, he basically started out as a rebel against the established social order. And that's significant. And you could do a lot with that. And no one ever does. Yeah. And especially right now. Now, to be fair, He's been around for one panel before this, and he was originally intended to be a different villain entirely, the sort of C-list villain, the Owl. So, you know... (laughs) Oh my god! (laughs) I think it's fine that he's not too exciting yet, but it definitely is a hell of a contrast what we see here and what we're later going to see, you know, in Executioner's Song or Age of Apocalypse or whatever. Yeah, I feel good about the Daredevil villains comparison, because yeah, the difference between the Owl and the Kingpin is the difference between Ground Level Apocalypse and Ultimate Ruler Apocalypse. Absolutely. And that's a critical difference for him to work. All of that analysis aside, what we have right now is X-Factor looking for the Alliance of Evil to resolve this dangling storyline. Right, so they track the Alliance to Apocalypse's quaint and charming chateau. It's sort of like a ski lodge. It is. I mean, it's on the California coast, so I guess you couldn't ski, but it looks like a ski lodge. You can't on the coast, I guess. There are places in California where you can ski, I think. You can ski really ineffectively on the coast. You could water ski. Uh, Maybe it's a water ski lodge. Do they have those? Man, now I... It's... Okay, it's like 200 degrees in Portland right now. Um, it is. Maybe and, we could water ski with Apocalypse. Well, no, and, and, and now I'm thinking of like Highway 1 and just the gorgeous California Coastal Highway and the fact that I want to be there rather than here. But listeners, we are here for you instead talking about Apocalypse's Ski Lodge. Right, because we, we could be you. water skiing with the Alliance of Evil right now. That's how much we care. That's right. Yeah, X-Factor goes to track him down, meanwhile angsting a great deal. I mean, Cyclops, whenever Gene is not around, is basically talking to whoever will listen about how shitty he feels about what he's doing and how he doesn't know how to do anything better. Can I mention how bad I feel for Iceman and Beast in this whole mess? I actually kind of feel like this happens a lot in the Silver Age, too, that there's this massive, obnoxious interpersonal soap opera playing out with the other three characters, and these guys really just wanted to get the band back together. Right, they're like, can't we just, you know, fight bad guys and then go get ice cream and listen to beat poetry? I mean, that's what we do, right? Aw, they are the pure and untainted souls of the X-Men. Or at (laughs) least were. I guess Iceman still kind of is. Yeah, we mentioned earlier that the book is not shy about painting Cyclops as being kind of a petty dick. That actually makes me respect the character a lot more, because it's not like with Xavier sometimes, the way that he does bad things and the book will try to justify them as really being okay. The book condemns Cyclops' behavior as it should, and so he's allowed to then acknowledge it address it and get past it and mature and grow up. And that is awesome to see. Yeah, And again, he does. I mean, in talking about Nolan, he says he sacrificed himself for the woman he loved while I can't decide who I love. So I'm sacrificing them instead. You know, that's kind of a remarkable lot of self-awareness for someone who a week previously was wandering around in a fugue state by the docks looking for Bernard the poet. The difference a writer change can make. And so X-Factor goes ahead and breaks in in various ways, as they do, and they confront Apocalypse, where he does the aforementioned stretchy hammerhand thing. Speaking of breaking in through various ways, I should point out that one of the motifs from the latent run that does continue, to my great joy, is the fact that X-Factor just continues to bust down walls like the Kool-Aid Man as their primary way of getting between rooms. I feel like Cameron Hodge, to save money in X-Factor headquarters, just makes all the rooms out of paper mache, because he's like, they're going to break them down anyway, let me just make them out of something cheap. Yeah, all the windows are just sugar. (laughs) Exactly. It's just like an old Hollywood set. 
Oh my um, god. So, yeah, they fight, and as this is going on, Marvel Girl uses her powers, and Cyclops, who is watching, sees something he was not expecting, which is a phoenix flare around her, that sort of firebird that used to appear around Phoenix, who Jean is very specifically not. So here's something I like very much in the art, which is that it's really ambiguous as to whether he's seeing something that's actually there. Geist does a great job of drawing what could be a phoenix flare, reasonably, but could also just be a flare of energy. You know, it's up to your interpretation, and that ambiguity is really important. Yeah, and what we were talking about, Simonson making X-Factor feel like part of the X-Universe at the time, one of the things she picks up that's always been an X-Universe thing since Claremont took over is the long game. And this Phoenix Flare right here, that is going to be a great big part of that. We're not going to fully understand what was going on there for quite a while. And oh boy, it will be so much worse than anything we could have conceived at this point. Yep. Long story short, X-Factor beats the Alliance of Evil, they beat Apocalypse, they retrieve Mike Nolan. Who promptly dies. Uh, yeah, well, after the Alliance escapes. Who impromptly dies. Yes. Um, and uh, speaking of that escape, so I've, we've mentioned that Apocalypse is kind of intimidating and kind of not here. So the dialogue kind of works until it doesn't. See figure one, this. Excellent. You have done well. Your assistance has been invaluable. I will find you again when I require your aid in winnowing out the weak. And now, I bid you all adieu. Do not try to find me. A search would prove fruitless. So many and varied are my guises. He's very Silver Age Magneto. I just like that he's saying, don't try to find me, because I'm going to be, like, disguised. Is freaking uh, Jean Parmesan from Arrested Development or something? Do not try to find me! Many and varied are my hats and false mustaches! I'm just saying, we have some fan art waiting to happen. Listeners, get on it. Three apocalypses on each other's shoulders in a raincoat. (laughs) Perfect. And so, uh, yeah, Nolan does die, but as he does, he's like, hey, don't worry about saving me. You guys have other people who need you, who are more deserving. Go help them. At which point, Iceman declares, and the team decides as a whole, that yes, what they actually need to do is concentrate on growing the hell up, dealing with their shit, and actually saving mutants, which is what they're supposed to be doing in the first place. And it really feels like... It really kind of feels like the book resolving that it's going to, you know, grow up and do it right. Yeah, I mean, the book may not have exactly found its voice yet, but what Simonson is doing right now is essentially violently wrenching it onto the right track. It's awkward, but it's necessary, and I think she handles it about as gracefully as a person could. I think of X-Factor number 7 as really being Simonson's first issue, because it's, it's the first story that's not just coming out of threads that Leighton left. And it's one of the most memorable early X-Factor stories for me in terms of both how it plays out and what it represents, but especially in terms of the antagonists. Yeah, I completely agree. And I mean, we're, we're going to see them pretty early on, but there are these two mutants named Glowworm and Bulk. And Bulk is basically a big dude, like Sunder from the Morlocks or something like that. Glowworm is really weird looking. Remember those Glowworm toys you had as a kid? Imagine one of those, like, designed by Bernie Wrightson on a really bad day. Yeah, he's sort of this humanoid figure with this big, wormy abdomen and green skin and, like, freaky hair. And uh, they're basically radioactive mutants. You know, yes, they're mutants, but they've also been hanging out around radiation for so long. Possibly the radiation that caused the mutation, since that's still kind of a thing in X-Men continuity. Yeah, the relationship between radiation and mutants, specifically, you know, X-gene-carrying mutants, is something that's been very, very, very inconsistent across the Marvel line. With the original X-Men, especially, I think if I recall, Beast's mutation was specifically supposed to be linked to his dad's exposure to radiation through his work, and ditto Charles Xavier. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And that's something that kind of disappears in later generations of the team and the book, and also, you know, later representations even of the original characters. Mm-hmm. 
But these two are very much radioactive, and that's actually really sad. And this is the part that always stuck with me as a kid. Like, this was a hard issue for me to read. So, Bulk is sort of the gentle giant stereotype. It's like, a he's a little simple. He's, yeah, he's not very intelligent, but he's a nice, well meaning dude who doesn't know his own strength. And he keeps trying to take pets. They've been wandering around these junkyards. He tries to take, like, a rat, for instance, and Glowworm says, Hey, you know what's going to happen? It's going to be the same thing that happened last time. Bulk's like, You know, maybe, no, I'll, I'll take really good care of it this time. And no, it, it dies almost immediately of radio poisoning. And what you learn is that this has been happening with his pets faster and faster and faster. And he and Glowworm are also starting to get sick. Yeah, they're starting to die. And they haven't done anything wrong. It's just this is the hand they've been dealt. And society won't take them in because it hates mutants. Even the Morlocks won't take them in. Because they're radioactive and they're killing anything alive that's around them for long periods of time. This isn't hating and fearing them because they're different. This is being sympathetic, but saying, look, you can't safely be here or we're all going to die. Yeah. So it's just super tragic. And when I was a kid, this was like kind of hard for me to handle. I think specifically the part where Bulk kept trying to keep pets and they kept dying. Like I just could not process that. Yeah, that is wrenching even as an adult. Totally. And so what these two decide ultimately is that they're going to die anyway. They're going to make their deaths mean something. They're going to take out X Factor because X Factor is propagating this anti-mutant propaganda and hysteria. They're bad guys. They're going after mutants as the public face that they've built for themselves. Meanwhile, X-Factor is actually doing a pretty good job of taking out itself. X-Factor's interpersonal secrets, the drama that they've been dealing with, that's all coming to a head. And especially the secrets that Scott's been keeping from Jean. Yeah. At one point, he accidentally calls her Maddie when she's trying to use her telekinesis to open a latch on an airplane. And she's like, who's Maddie, Scott? And he covers and snaps back really fast. She's someone who knows how to open a hatch. Right, which is just cringe-inducing. Yeah, and I can totally see it being just sort of the frustrated comeback of the moment, but it's also just... Oh, God. Every conversation in here rings really true and is just horribly painful. And that is Louise Simonson's strength showing through right there. She's dealing with some really challenging story material, and she's dealing with it gracefully, but gracefully does not mean pleasantly. This should not be pleasant. So Jean may not be a telepath anymore, but she's still fairly socially adept, and she's still with a group of people she knows very, very well. So she manages to corner the other three members of the team, Angel, Beast, and Iceman, in their training room, and basically trick them into telling her who Maddie is. Yeah, and so she realizes at the end of this conversation that A, Scott is married, B, it's to this woman Maddie, and C, they all knew and nobody told her. Which, yeah, is horrible. Can you even imagine being in that position? That's kind of a really, really heavy betrayal, yeah. It is the damn worst. And yeah, you know, there have been repeated alarms and repeated attempts at conversations, but at the same time, I feel like the extent to which everyone in X Factor like should have drawn a line and said something is kind of not to be exaggerated. Yeah, this is a book about adults and about growing up, and these adults still have a lot of growing up to do as of this issue. They really do. So Jean is devastated, and she's furious, and she just sort of storms off and smashes her X-Factor pager and is hanging out by herself. Meanwhile, Glowworm and Bulk are heading to the Morlock tunnels to make their way to X-Factor, and they run into one of the Morlocks whom we have not met yet. That is Sally Blevins, Skids. You guys, I love Skids so much. She's such a minor character, and nobody ever does anything with her, and she is awesome! She's gonna be an agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. eventually, I think. Uh, yeah, I believe so. So, the first thing we notice about Sally Blevins, who I don't think is even called Sally Blevins at this point, is her outfit. Guys, look at what she's wearing. What she's wearing, I think, is precisely what Miles would have worn if he had been a teenage girl in 1986. Uh, yes, you are absolutely right. She's got, like, this midriff-bearing red sweater and this red beret and these, like, giant bangly bracelets and this tiger print set of leggings. She's wearing tiger print capri leggings and, I think, enormous sneakers. 
Yeah, and like a, like a sweatshirt around her waist in addition to the one that she's wearing on her torso. It makes me so sad that no one ever cosplays skids because it's a distinctive outfit. It's a really fun outfit, and it's an outfit that I feel like you could actually piece together fairly easily from modern streetwear. And above all, she's just awesome. So yeah, cosplayers, get on that, please. Yeah. Get- Find yourself some tiger print capri leggings. So Skid's powers, she basically has a force field around her at all times. That's where her name, Skid's, comes from. Things just sort of skid off her. She can't really directly touch anything. So how does the outfit work? Because, I mean, she's pretty. She's a Morlock who hasn't had her face altered by mask because the changes won't even stay on. She has trouble with things like eating and picking up solid objects because of the force field. How does that outfit work? How does her beret not just slide off? So here's my theory. Sally Blevins is not actually a mutant. What? She's just so stylish that basically that creates its own force field of style that prevents, you know, Mask from, like, messing with that style and prevents, you know, radiation from touching her. She's just that good. So she is the kid who was so stylish that she inadvertently found a way to weaponize fashion. Exactly. That is my story, and I am sticking to it for at least this specific sentence. I accept that, headcanon. That's terrific. Actually, now I want there to be an entire book based around that premise. This headcanon, by the way, is a uh, kicky red beret. Skids is like, hey, guys, you, you can't come in here. I mean, your radiation is not going to affect me, but you know you're going to kill the Morlocks if you get near them. I mean, please don't do that. And they're like, yeah, could you just let them clear out for a little while so we can just, you know, head through because we got to get to X Factor and it's either go through the sparsely populated tunnels that can actually be cleared fairly fast or, you know, city streets where we're probably going to get killed partway there. Uh, and regardless of what actually happens, they head to X-Factor headquarters and start basically yelling challenges at X-Factor from the streets, getting a whole lot of news coverage immediately. Which leads to the saddest, funniest fight. Yeah. So X-Factor realizes, okay, well, we have to address this if we're going to maintain our cover because the X-Factor mutant hunting group wouldn't just let this stand. But we also don't want to hurt these guys because clearly their lives are terrible. So what do we do? Also, we can't blow our cover and we can't fight these guys without using our powers and we can't use our powers as X-Factor. So they pull what I think is maybe the most ludicrous, you know, double blind, everyone's disguised as somebody else switch up so far. Yeah, about half the team goes in their X-Terminator guises, you know, the sort of superhero X across the chest outfits. Well, they're super villains, the Exterminators. Uh, they're they're, villains, they're yes. renegade mutants specifically. Uh, to go and essentially join the fight slash protest with Glowworm and Bulk. And the other half of the team, bolstered by like Cameron Hodge and Rusty and people like that. I think uh, Beast's girlfriend Vera is there. They show up in the X-Factor mutant hunting outfits to stop the Exterminators and Glowworm and Bulk. And the whole thing is basically a show to kind of shut Glowworm and Bulk down without hurting them and kind of shuffle them off to the side. And keep the entire fight away from the very, very large crowd that's gathered since, again, Glowworm and Bulk are radioactive. Yeah. Now, another important thing about this fight is that we first see a character who's going to become kind of a big deal, that being the news reporter who's covering it, whose name is Trish Tilby. Trish Tilby is actually Beast's future girlfriend interviewing Beast's current girlfriend. I think that's our first introduction to Trish. Right, because Trish is interviewing Vera about the whole thing. Now, I want to talk about the actual fight because it's sad and it's weird, but it's also really funny. So the exterminators are basically there to be the clumsy, we're totally going to help you, oops, ran into you again, so-called allies, you know, again, to get Bulk and Glowworm out of the way without hurting them and to make what nominal X-Factor is doing look more realistic. Most of it's actually just the exterminators using their mutant powers and improvising, you know, oh no, don't use your anti-mutant gravity ray. Right, stuff like that. They're trying really hard and it's pretty funny. It's pretty funny. And then you realize, wait, this is the last act of two desperate men trying to make a difference in the world, trying to make an impact before 
before they die due to circumstances that are not their fault, and it's being turned into a farce just so these jerks can keep up their cover as mutant hunters. What the hell? Yeah. Again, this is Simonson just just tearing holes into the premise of X-Factor until it looks like Swiss cheese, as she should, because it's a terrible idea. Finally, X-Factor and the Exterminators are able to get Glowworm and Bulk enough away from the crowd that they can explain what's going on and offer to help them. Glowworm and Bulk basically say, you know, no, we're doomed. There's not a chance we're going to go somewhere and die quietly. Yeah. And X-Factor makes a half-hearted attempt to say, hey, no, it'll be fine. We're going to make the world a better place. But you can tell that they don't fully believe themselves as they say that. Like, they're all pretty beaten down ideologically at this point. They just ruined the lives of these two people who they really should, by all rights, have been able to help. Well, I'm not sure if they would have been able to help them, even if they'd come to them under different circumstances, but they definitely did just render an attempted last sacrifice entirely meaningless for, again, the sake of a facade that is doing way, way, way more harm than good, which is something that X-Factor is starting to very vividly realize at this point. And they're also starting to question Hodge's rhetoric. Yeah. So in the aftermath of this fight, Gene and Scott are in kind of radiation suits using their powers and some tech to clean up the areas where the fights took place, to clean up the radiation from it. Those of you who like to nitpick Cyclops' powers being used inconsistently may enjoy this scene. But yeah, as this is happening, they are realizing, and Louise Simonson has very much realized, this conversation can't be put off any longer. Let's resolve this nonsense with Gene and Scott and Maddie. Go. And they just have a pretty quiet conversation about it. You know, she asks if she can see a picture of Maddie, and they basically just talk. You know, she calls him out on a lot of crap. Yeah, and he doesn't try to fight back because he knows that he's, yeah, fully in the wrong. One little detail that I really like that's a little bit heartbreaking is she sees the picture of Madeline and Christopher and she asks if it's a boy or a girl and Scott says it's a boy and Jean says, oh, I always thought we'd have a girl. Oh, shit. Because in an alternate timeline where they did stay together, they did. Oh, my God. And it's just, there's just such wonderful pathos here. Simonson just does it so well. She's not a perfect writer and she's still finding the characters' voices, but little touches are already coming through that are exactly correct. For me, this is the scene tonally and content-wise that defines X-Factor's personal dynamic and defines its role in the line as the grown-up book. My definition of adulthood, and I think a pretty good working definition of adulthood, is not so much being better equipped to handle crap that the world throws at you, not necessarily understanding it better, but understanding that your life is a mess and your interpersonal relationships are a mess, but you also still have to clean the radioactive waste out of the tunnels. Someone's got to do it, it's got to get done, and continuing on with both. Right, you can't just go find a grown-up because you are that grown-up. Speaking of the compromises of adulthood, the villains this issue are Freedom Force. Yes, so Freedom Force, as you may recall, are the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants essentially rebranded and working for the government as nominal superheroes, despite the fact that they're still total jerks. And they have been tasked with tracking down one fugitive from justice by the name of Rusty Collins. Yes, the aforementioned pyrokinetic who X-Factor rescued in the first issue. And he is technically AWOL and also possibly a murderer. So, um, yeah, the, the government would like to have a few words with him. And Freedom Force has figured out that he is running around with X-Factor. Yeah, because, of course, one member of Freedom Force is Destiny, who has precognitive abilities. She can sort of track the strands of fate and destiny to uh, see connections like that. Now, this is fascinating, and this is a weird juxtaposition, because in a lot of ways, I think of Freedom Force as the prototype for the later iterations of X-Factor. Yeah, the government-controlled X-Factor. I think they absolutely are. Well, they're, they're, fact, they're run by Val Cooper, who's, uh-huh. again, the same person who's going to be the liaison to X-Factor. They're a team of mutants who are basically granted government immunity to function under that government banner. This issue has my favorite what-the-hell-are-you-even-talking-about moment of the run. Oh, yeah? Yeah, where they're fighting their X-Factor, or Rusty specifically, 
And Mystique is saying something about, you know, hate and paranoia about mutants. And that's why we're Freedom Force now and not the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. As if the word mutant were the branding issue with that previous name. Like, if they were just the Brotherhood of Evil, it would have been fine. It's like, oh, yeah, Brotherhood of Evil. Yeah, I'm on board. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, that's down. They don't sound like criminals or anything. I mean, you know, the word Brotherhood, that's a good thing. I I love that idea. Like, I, I love the idea that maybe she's right. The Marvel Universe is a very strange place, so it's hard to say. But yeah, they're going through sort of a a briefing, and we get to see them all bickering and sort of showing off their powers as they do, which I think is a good idea to do that when a group of characters is showing up in a book for the first time. You want to sort of demonstrate who they each are with at least one personality trait and one glimpse of their powers. Now, X-Factor at this point is actually off to attempt to intersect with the X-Men for a failed crossover attempt. Right, I kind of love this, because in Uncanny X-Men number 209, which is coming out around the same time, the X-Men and the Hellfire Club's inner circle and Nimrod are having their big fight in Central Park. And apparently X-Factor, according to this issue, has been called in by a local government, uh, the mayor or somebody, to help out because they're good at dealing with mutant problems, right? This fight, as you may recall if you're caught up on the podcast, is the one in which Harry Leland wears a costume so bad it literally kills him. Yes, and the one where Rachel Summers, who is bleeding to death due to other circumstances, which are mainly Wolverine's claws, wanders off and disappears from continuity for a while. Which raises an interesting question because Spiral is on Freedom Force. Spiral is the one who lures her off to the body shop, but she's on Freedom Force right now and Freedom Force is also headed down to the park to try to get Rusty because Destiny has figured out that Rusty will figure out that something's wrong. And although he's been told to stay inside, he'll also try to go down to the park to track down X-Factor. So if they track down X-Factor, they'll find Rusty. So essentially, Rusty is going to warn X-Factor about Freedom Force, who's only coming after X-Factor because they know Rusty's on his way. Yeah, Destiny's actual involvement in events creates these amazing continuity loops. Yes, but in answer to the spiral question, that's actually addressed in the comic. Well, hot damn. Because at one point, when X-Factor does head toward Uncanny X-Men number 209, they're intercepted by Freedom Force, and Spiral says, Oh, wait, I sense a presence I've been looking for for a long time. I'm out of here, and teleports away. I love that Spiral basically gives no fucks about alliances. Right, I mean, she's always looking out for number one, and whether that's her or Mojo changes, but still. So, Freedom Force is coming after Rusty, and a mob is coming after them all. And Skids is able to intervene. Skids, the Morlock with the amazing outfit, sees what's going on and is able to get Rusty away. So, X-Factor fights the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants, which is to say Freedom Force. Rusty and Skids are fleeing. And all the while, Uncanny X-Men 209, that big fight in Central Park, is still happening entirely off-panel. X-Factor doesn't actually ever get to that storyline. I love that. Again, they really want it to be a crossover, but it's not, and it's not going to be. Nope. Freedom Force crushes X-Factor. They nearly get Rusty, but Skids manages to get him away just in time. Unfortunately, Rusty and Skids then have to contend with the X-Men's number one natural enemy, which is to say an angry mob of humans. Yeah. I mean, we've also said that one of the purposes of this book, of X-Factor, is to show mutant-human relations, and so we see a lot of anti-mutant sentiment, and they're basically just throwing bricks and rocks and stuff at Skids, at which point Rusty flames up, and some angry mobster says, The kid! He made the grass! His body! Burn! And Rusty replies, Couple of months ago it'd have been you, punk! You guessed it! I'm a mutant! We both are, and we're proud of it! Anyone ready to tell us we shouldn't be? I mean, it's not like that super memorable dialogue, but it is kind of a mission statement for the book right there. And so going with the perhaps questionably used mutant and proud line from the movie X-Men First Class, that's kind of coming from here. This is kind of how you do that without co-opting the Black Power Movement. 
Yes, yes, this is exactly how you do it. Uh, X-Men First Class writers, take note. Sigh. So this basically leads us as Freedom Force shows up and Mystique turns into Uncle Sam for some reason. Wait, what? Yeah, okay, so Mystique turns into Uncle Sam. I don't know why. She just sort of does. Does she then proceed to turn into an eagle? Because that would dovetail really nicely with the episode of Evolution that I'm currently writing about. I'm going to say yes. But where this all leads is the Mutant Massacre which is basically the first really big X-Men capital E event. We now have three X-Men titles, Uncanny X-Men, New Mutants, and X-Factor, and the Mutant Massacre is going to be a storyline that's going to run through all of them simultaneously. As well as, I believe, Power Pack and Thor. Yeah, Power Pack and the Mighty Thor tie-in. Some other Marvel titles are affected in more minor ways. Yeah, for now, as much as this is in medias rest, we'll go ahead and leave off because we want to tackle the Mutant Massacre as one big story. Meanwhile, you've got questions. Alex Dumas asks on the blog... You've both spoken at length about Claremont's writing tics, but is there a repeatedly used line that's a favorite? Man, I don't know. I kind of like all of them. Nigh and Vulnerable is, of course, one that we keep on coming back to. I kind of like the I love you and I love you refrain just because I think if there's a note to have a ritualistic tick on, that's a really good one, too. It is really sweet whenever it comes up. I think for me, it's actually yum. It's not one of the more well-known Claremontisms, but you'll often see a female character when seeing a male character in some state of undress or whatever just sort of smile to themselves and quietly say, yum. And I like that because it gives women sexual agency in a way that you don't see a lot of in any media at all in the mid-80s. And that's something Claremont's always been really, really good about. Okay, so Lisbeth Ann asks on Tumblr, Talking about Sam and his family in episode 61 made me think, does Xavier or Emma Frost or Brian Braddock or whoever is in charge financially compensate the team members or students. I mean, I don't think anyone could juggle the team in a second job, and most of them aren't independently wealthy. At least the Brotherhood could be stealing money or valuables, but I doubt the X-Men are, especially Sam, the best kid. So, that's a really good question, and it's very seldom directly addressed. I did find one reference relatively recently to Wolverine definitely paying the teachers at the Jean Grey school, you know, Iceman and Rachel Grey and all those people. But other than that, I don't know. Now, we do know that the Xavier Institute or Jean Grey School or whatever gets its money from the wealthier members. So those are usually Charles Xavier, Emma Frost, or Warren Worthington III. There are also some other very wealthy uh, characters in the X-Men, like M and Sunspot, and then Rogue and Karma have huge inheritances that everyone always forgets about. Most recently, though, Baby Krakoa, who the Jean Grey School is built on top of, Krakoa the Living Island, this is like a younger version of it, can grow trees that diamonds come out of that were presumably crushed inside the earth. So they're doing just fine on money in that regard. Whether or not it's covered really varies from series to series. I believe that original X Factor is paid by officially employees of our contractors to Worthington Industries through a couple shell corporations. Obviously, later X-Factor iterations literally just work for the government or eventually for several industries. And yeah, it's not consistently played and it's not often written about. I think money tends to be one of those things that, except in Spider-Man, is just sort of ignored in superhero comics. Because as with sitcoms, when people live in, you know, million dollar apartments on crap jobs, it gets in the way of telling the stories that you want to tell. It makes it a lot more logistically complex in ways that are often not super fun to read about in a visual format. That said, I choose to assume that the Xavier Institute typically helps out the families of any of its students or faculty if they really need it. Like, not if they're, you know, a little down on their luck, but if things are really dire. Like, for instance, uh, Karma's younger siblings, Liang and Naga, I always got the impression that a lot of the money that took care of them came not just from Karma, but from the Xavier Institute. Well, Karma specifically has a work-study arrangement with the Xavier Institute, too, that is actually addressed early on in New Mutants. Oh, that's true. I'd forgotten about that. 
So a uh, short answer, it doesn't come up a lot, but you can kind of figure out how it probably works. I've always sort of assumed that the people who were officially faculty got paid. As far as team members who weren't actively working in teaching or administrative roles at the school, I have less of a clear sense. Yeah, hard to say. All right, so uh, this podcast, speaking of making money, is supported entirely by our generous listeners on Patreon. Yeah, you are the folks who let us keep this entirely ad-free and basically keep us working for you and nobody else. And it's been a while since we did these, but we have some people to thank. Uh, Certain levels of Patreon support entitle people to be thanked in various voices. So let's start out with the angry Claremontian narrator. If only you had stopped to think before following your heart, Brendan Hutt. But you were blinded by your grief at the loss of Lucas Brown, and now here you stand, a shadow of the hero you once were. Will your newfound resolution be enough to make right? Or will your lack of control destroy you as it destroyed your one true love? And with that, I believe I am turning it over to the one and only Apocalypse. Men may mock my villainous chateau, men may mock my powers of body transformation, but soon as my centuries-old plans are at long last made manifest, men shall tremble at the name of Apocalypse. Now my horsemen must be chosen. Christina Atkinson, I call upon you to become my dark horseman of ski instruction. Emily Wyatt, You shall be transformed into my dread horseman of stretchy turtlenecks. The age of man is ended. Now is the age of the strong. Well, on that note, Rachel and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Portland, Oregon and produced by Kyle Yount, host of the Godzilla podcast, KaijuCast. New episodes come out every Sunday on iTunes, Stitcher, and at rachelandmiles.com. Check out rachelandmiles.com for all kinds of extra content, episode companion posts, essays, fan art, X-Men evolution recaps, and much, much more. This podcast is completely listener-supported and ad-free and is made possible by its generous Patreon supporters. If you'd like to become one of those fine folks, check out the link at the top of rachelandmiles.com. This week again, special thanks to Max Carlton of Waiting for the Trade for the assist on the cold open, and a very, very happy birthday to the youngest consulting expert, Kestrel. Next week, it's time for the first X event ever. The Mutant Massacre, which is every bit as cheerful as it sounds. (laughs) 